Guys, would you grab hold of a Bible and make your way this morning into the book of Psalms? We are going to be in Psalm 73 this morning. If you're here and you need a Bible, there's a page number on the screen. You can get there quickly. You can join us there. You can use an electronic device. We invite you to do that. If you're with us online, we are so excited you're with us. Hey, join us entirely. Have a Bible. Open it up. Be with us so that you're not just listening, but you're connecting and the Word of God is working in you. We're hoping that that would take place in all of us this morning. Now, as you guys are making your way there, let me just quickly pause and ask, answer the question, like, why are we studying Psalm 73 this morning? I thought we were in the book of Daniel. Well, we are in the book of Daniel. We'll be back there next week. Here's the simple part of the story. I was supposed to be on vacation this week, and in the midst of this and all of these things that kind of took place, I just knew that I needed to be the one that would stand here this morning and kind of walk with us through this journey, but in a very practical way, I just didn't have time <laughs> uh, to put together a message out of Daniel to study that and put it out, and so instead of really kind of trying to do that, I wanted just to share a little bit of an overflow. I wanted to take you into one of my favorite psalms. Uh, that's been special to me through the years, and I've talked about it in a number of spaces, but I thought it would just be good for us to focus on, but again, kind of just with a little bit of uh, grace and understanding on your part. Again, it's just a little bit of an overflow. Definitely didn't have the time to put into it as I normally would for a message on Sunday morning, but I do believe in God's faithfulness, and I do believe in the power of His Word, and so I'm hoping that God would meet you there this morning. So let's take a moment and pray for that. Let's just ask that God would give us ears to hear, what he would have for us from his word in this moment and season. Father, we come before you right now, and I am so grateful that we get a chance to study your word together. I think of what you tell us in Hebrews, that your word is alive, that it's powerful. There's nothing else like it. There's not another means of communication. There's not another written work that has any even close proximity to your word. It's alive. It's your word into our lives. I think about what you tell us there in the book of Romans that some of us were reading this morning, where you tell us that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Lord, I love that that's exactly what you can do, that your word would work into us and bring us into a life of faith, that is both a rescue, but the way to live, that opens up all the doors for us that we need with you. God, I thank you that it's your word that does that. But because that's exactly what I, we need this morning, I pray that you'd help us to hear it, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from your word. God, would you grant us favor to hear, that you give us ears to hear what you would speak to us today, that you would speak to us by your word, that you would speak to us in our lives, God, anything that's kind of resisting that right now, would you pull that down and bring us into a place of openness to receive from you what you would have for us? We ask for that together, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reading somebody else's diary is entirely inappropriate. I mean, wrong. It's an invasion of somebody's privacy to dive into their world and read what they're going through unless, unless they give it to you, unless they ask you to, to open up and read what's written there. And what I need you to understand this morning is that's exactly where we are. Psalm 73 is Asaph's diary. He's bringing you into an entry in his journal that's walking us through what he was facing and realizing, and he's inviting you 
through his eyes to, to face what he was facing and maybe, by God's grace, to learn and draw us into what, what he has for us. So with that held out to us, what does he begin with? Notice with me there, Psalm 73, verse 1. Asaph writes, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Truly, God is good. I mean, that's where he just begins for us. He brings us into this reality of helping us understand, hey, God is good, and he's good to his people. He's good to Israel. He's good to the people who are pure in heart, that he, he's, he's right by the lives of his people. This is one of those truths that is absolutely foundational, that God would just is a God who is holy and just and good. It's not a small matter. In fact, it is just backbone to everything else that we believe, to everything else that is there for us. If God isn't good, then that would make everything else suspect. That would make everything else move away. The goodness of God is foundational behind all the truths that we have. In fact, I love how often it's expressed that way in Scripture. I think about it often in the Psalms, you would find it like in Psalm 136, where it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and his mercy endures forever. It's like, here's where we are. We find ourselves in this place, this place where we're recognizing our God is good. Our God is good, and his mercy is forever. Again, that's a refrain that finds itself all the way through Scripture, constantly being reminded to us into a space that we could be there, and that reality, again, is vital. That's the thing that Asaph is thinking about. So he begins this journal entry by saying, it is true. It is true that God is good. Truly, God is good, and he's good to his people, but that was part of the struggle. Notice with me as he says it that way. We'll just begin reading in verse 1 again. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, but as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph draws us into this, and he's just letting us know in his own kind of revelatory place where he's saying, hey, here's where I am. He says, I almost stumbled. I mean, I know God is good, but it's the very reality that he began to question, that he began wrestling through God's goodness. He began kind of struggling with that, and it wasn't a minor struggle. He lets us know that he nearly slipped, like he nearly fell away, like it nearly drove him away from this place of believing in God. Why? What drew him here? Well, in many ways, it was the unfairness of life. Let's just read through parts of that. I'll start there again in verse 2. But as for me, Asaph says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For, here's the reason, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks throughout the earth, through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, Asaph writes, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph is struggling. He's looking at life and he's realizing in many ways it feels entirely unfair. He's looking around at the world and he's looking at people who are ungodly, who are wicked, who mock God, who, who mock everything he is. And sometimes he says they seem to be doing really well. They're, they're, they're healthy, they're wealthy, they seem to be successful, and, and he's struggling with that. Now, again, please understand, that's not a universal statement. It's not one of these things that all ungodly are that way. That's not true. But his problem is that some are, that sometimes those who are godly seem to be suffering, and yet those who are ungodly seem to be successful. In fact, you might just notice it as he's kind of thinking that through, gaze on down there as he thinks about his own life. He says in verse 13, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long I've been plagued. I've been chastened every morning. He says there's these ungodly people. They seem to be doing fine. I'm not doing fine. I'm having a hard space and it is this place where life seems unfair, where it doesn't seem to be working the way that Asaph expected it to work, that it doesn't seem to be this place where good people have good things that happen to them and bad people have bad things that happen to them. It is, in that sense, unfair. Now, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how real that even is to you. Most of us who have any kind of conception of just gazing at the world will begin to understand this is true. I mean, this is one of these things that kind of meets us in an unjust way where we think, hey, why is it that way? I think about it for us as a fellowship. Many of you were there or caught it online as we walked through Lori McKelvey's funeral memorial on Friday. And it's one of those hard spaces where you you could gaze at this and think, why, Lord? Why this godly family, why these people who loved God, lived for God, why, why would she get sick and why would she die when there's these ungodly people that seem to be doing incredibly well? This seems wrong. I mean, sometimes that's that struggle where you find yourself thinking this doesn't feel that way, or we think about others in our fellowship, like the garrisons who, who are facing cancer and walking through that, or others, and you think, God, why is it that sometimes godly people seem to kind of inherit some of these things, where ungodly people that I know, they seem to be getting away with all kinds of things. It seems to be unfair in the midst of that. Maybe even in this COVID world, as we kind of walk that through, it doesn't happen by any kind of, you know, logic where we think, okay, you know, again, good people are doing well and bad people are doing poorly. It's not the way that it works. It's a brokenness that finds itself very, very present and very, very real within our world. And again, I gave a couple of examples, but there's probably dozens more that you could very quickly, and some of you, it's a present thing. I mean, some of you are recognizing there's unfairness, there's not, it isn't working the way I thought it would work. You know, it doesn't seem like sometimes God's people are doing well. I mean, it's a struggle whereby we could look at this, and again, it's a reality that we look at life and we think it doesn't seem to be fair in the sense that we would think it would be fair. Now, for Asaph, that's what he's struggling with, but a couple other points about it, it's a struggle that he's having privately. Uh, what do I mean? Well, go on down there in verse 15. He says, if I had said thus, I will, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. 
So it doesn't always happen this way. Not everybody processes it this way, but this is Asaph. For him, as he was having this struggle, it's not something that he was posting on Facebook. It's not some rant that he was ranting to everybody. In fact, he's telling nobody. Nobody knows. He says, if I spoke what I'm thinking, I might hurt somebody else. If I said what's going on in my heart, I would be untrue to who God is, and what if that stumbled somebody else? And so for Asaph, this is an entirely private struggle. Nobody else knows that he's probably even having it. Nobody else sees that it's happening in his world. He's processing this alone. Now, that's neither as an instruction that it should be that way or always the right way to happen, but it is where Asaph is. And what's entirely interesting about that is the reality of how often that happens. Again, I might be speaking to somebody right here in this room or who's joining us right now online, and this is you, and nobody else knows it. I mean, nobody else is right now thinking, oh, so-and-so needs this message. I mean, this is exactly the kind of questions that they're asking because nobody knows you're asking. Nobody knows that you're struggling. You're struggling, and yet you have a hard space even being honest with that and saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm, ask, I'm wondering, is God really good? Because it doesn't feel like it's working the way that I am. That's where Asaph is. He's having this you know, mental, just spiritual debate inside of his heart, and it's a big one. It's a painful crisis of faith. Notice again what he says there in verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning, like I've been trying. I've been trying to be a good guy. I've, I've been dealing with my sin. I've been washing my hands. I've been trying to do the right thing. I've been trying to be a, you know, to do what God would want me to do. And instead of life going well, it's going badly. Like, I'm suffering. I'm plagued, whether it was physical, whether it was life going wrong for him. And then he says it this way in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. For Asaph, this is not just a minor question. It's, it's an incredibly painful struggle. Now, let me just be entirely plain. I'm not having that crisis of faith this morning. I don't want anybody to think, well, Jim, are you doing okay? And it's like, no. I mean, I've had them. I'm going to be honest with you. I can look back at my Christian life, and I can tell you in places where I had them. It's not that it's still not spaces of it where Psalm 73 still reaches me. It does. But here's what I want you to understand. It can be a really hard space. Not every Christian goes through a crisis of faith. There is no universal one-size-fits-all that everybody has to face this but many do, most do, where someplace they come to, and it's not just one of those passing curiosities where you're like, huh, I wonder why that is. I wonder why life doesn't seem to be fair. I mean, all of us can kind of be there. This is bigger than that. Asaph, I, he says, and I tried to understand it. It hurt. It hurt. It, it's painful. It's crushing. It's, it's devastating. He says, I almost slipped. That's again what he told us in verse 2. He says, it was so hard for me. I almost quit. Threw in the towel and said, I don't want to believe in God anymore. I almost quit coming to church. I almost quit calling myself a Christian. I almost, I mean, I'm in a place that's not a minor struggle. It's a life or death kind of spiritual struggle that Asaph was facing. And again, I just want to bring that to you this morning. Now, some of you aren't there. I mean, you're in the space where maybe you've had those spaces or it's kind of a distant one. We still can learn from this. And I hope by God's grace, we can find help walking with Asaph when he goes through this. But it is possible. 
And it's possible this morning in this room or online right now, I'm speaking to somebody that this is exactly you and nobody knows it. Nobody knows how close you are right now to saying, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going to go to church any longer. I'm thinking about throwing in the towel. I'm thinking about just because it doesn't seem to be going the way I thought it should go. I'm actually asking with really hard questions and they're crushing me and it's painful. And I just want to tell you here becomes one of the most amazing things is that God takes Asaph's journal and puts it in scripture so that you could read it and say, hey, you're not the only one that's faced those kinds of questions. You're not the only one that's gone through that. You're not the only one that's wrestled with it. And it can be hard it can be painful. And it's helpful just to recognize that. It's helpful to see where Asaph is and to feel just the weight of his struggle, to feel the, the, the weight of what he's going through. And again, just find yourself wherever that is met by that, which can be helpful. Well, it's helpful to see, but honestly, we want to find answers and answers are found. So let's just go back and read just a little bit again, just beginning in verse 13. He says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until. Until. I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Wow, okay, pause for with me a moment, saying it in the most simple way. The answer is eternity. Asaph discovers that what he needed to see was it was bigger than the present moment, that the answer that he's going to see is that. But before we talk about that, I want you to notice where he got this answer. He says, you know, I'm struggling, I'm going through this until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's a powerful reality. And that day it could have probably been the temple, kind of thinking about it there. We could definitely talk about it in the idea of being in the midst of God's people or being in the midst of, of going to church. And those would be helpful realities, but they're not close enough. The sanctuary of God has the idea of pressing into God's presence. The sanctuary was about that, about being in God's presence, and that's exactly what we need. Where Asaph found his help was by entering into God's presence, by pursuing that, and there he found that. Now, I say that, and the danger is you could hear me and think, well, that, of course, Jim, that would make sense. I mean, of course that's what you would do, but that's the problem. It's not always what we do. Weird things happen, especially when we might have those crises of faith, when, when we find ourselves asking really hard and difficult questions. Instead of moving towards God, sometimes we move away from God. Sometimes we're almost afraid that He's going to be angry with us just for asking the question. You know, like, well, like, what if He strikes me dead just for, for asking those hard questions? I mean, what if He's not okay with that? And I just want to tell you, because of this psalm, but even all the psalms, God can handle all of your tough questions. God can handle all of your wrestlings. And he is doing this very thing where he's inviting you not to move away from him when you struggle, but move towards him. To say, God, I'm going to press into your presence. That, where, that If there's going to be help that's going to be found, where I need to find that help is there. And I'll tell you this, I don't think the help is found anywhere else. 
I don't think you'll find it anywhere else. I think what you need can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in God, but right then becomes almost that place where sometimes you have to encourage yourself to do that, where you have to kind of just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just press after this. I love David when he talks about it in one of his Psalms and and he has these kind of just conversations in his own self. And he says, you know, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? Like, why are you there? And he just, he kind of encourages himself, like, go put your hope in God. Like, press after him. Sometimes that's what you have to do, is to be in that place of recognizing that you need him. And I just offer that to you here this morning, and maybe the most helpful thing that I could possibly say God is not afraid of you. God is not afraid of your questions. He is inviting you to him. He's inviting you to press in. He's inviting you into his presence, and it's only in his presence where you will find help and in, in, in what you need, and that's exactly what Asaph finds. So what did he find? Well, we read it. Verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. I understood their end. I understood where this is going. I understood eternity. Let me put it to you in the positive, though Asaph is looking at it from both perspectives. Can I say it to you this way? Heaven changes everything. I mean, that heaven is real and that that's coming before us. That is literally the big news, and it actually changes all that we would face and all that we would see, and that's the genuine answer that we need in this struggle, and it's a real struggle. So often, this is where God would constantly draw us. Now, I want you just to think about that with me for a moment in an honest way, because there is a sense that maybe you might not process it and see it as clearly as it ought to be seen. I mean, this isn't one of those kind of Christian cop-outs where we're just saying, hey, it's about heaven, as if to dismiss the question. No, it's a place of saying, no, that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what's needing to take place. I think about it. Some of you are with us on Friday again when we uh, celebrated uh, just God's work in Lori and her homecoming, but also just wrestled through some of the struggles. And if you were there you, or heard it, you know, we talked through in, in uh, John chapter 11 the story of Lazarus and all that was taking place in the midst of that. And Lazarus was sick, uh, a friend of Jesus, one that Jesus loved. And they sent to Jesus to find out what had happened and find, hoping that he would come but he didn't come, and Lazarus died. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and Martha comes, and she asks Jesus a question. In essence, she speaks to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Now, you got to kind of read behind this, because there's a deep question that she's kind of asking. She knows that Jesus loves them. In fact, it tells us that earlier in that text. They asked Jesus to come because he loves Lazarus. She also knows that he can do anything. That's what she says. I, even now I know whatever you ask God, God will give you. Why weren't you here? I mean, if you love us and you can do anything, why did you let us go through this? Why didn't you come in time? Why didn't you fix this before it happened? Why did my brother die? That's kind of what she's asking. She's, in essence, saying, well, Jesus, I, I don't, if you had been here, you could have done it. Why weren't you? Why did you let this happen is, in essence, what she's asking. And it's a genuine question. It's the kind of question that Asaph is asking. Like, why does it not always go the way I thought it would go? I thought if we were yours and we loved you that somehow you wouldn't let us go through some of these things. Why did you let this happen. Now, Jesus answers. 
Now, his answer isn't the answer that maybe she's expecting. It's not always the answer that we're expecting. He could have explained, he could have told her, hey, you know, don't worry, I'm about to raise Lazarus, he's going to rise, and we're going to do some incredible things. He could have told her some of the story, he doesn't. Instead, he gives her the same answer that Asaph discovers. He says it simply this way, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he asked her? Do you really believe this? Hear the question. Hear what Jesus is saying. It's not about this life. You know, if you die in this life, but you believe in me, you're going to rise again, and heaven's coming, and that changes everything. That changes everything. That the reality of heaven, that the reality of what's coming is, is the answer that we need. It's the big picture. It's the reality that's a part of this. What Jesus offers there is exactly what we so often need, that sometimes part of our problem is that we you know, put everything in this basket right here. We're judging life in our, our small perspective that we see, and he's inviting us to see it from the big perspective. He's inviting us to see it from the eternal perspective. Now, so essential is this to our lives as Christians. So vital is this in our life that without it, Christianity doesn't really work. I think about it this way. Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, and that's kind of what he's arguing, and because some began to doubt whether there really would be a resurrection. He says, if there's no resurrection and all we have is Christ in this life, then you should feel sorry for us because we're wasting our lives. Now, that's a hard thing to actually hear. Now, I've got to be honest with you for a moment. There's a piece of me that presses back against what Paul says here. I want to say, I don't, wait, wait a second. I've watched people. I've watched families be healed. I've seen godly men and godly wives, and I've seen lives changed, and I've seen the hope of Christ affect people in some good ways in this world. And the Christian life is a life that's worth living even in this world and that's true. But can I also tell you Paul's right? Because being a Christian in this life doesn't only not exempt us from the things that everybody else is going through, it actually introduces new struggles that weren't ours before we were in Christ. We have a world that hates Christ that we're now no longer a part of. We have a spiritual enemy that is hating him, that resists everything we are, that in some ways that becomes more difficult. Add to that thinking about it this way, for much of the Christian church, they've endured persecution, and there's a sense that Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, if, if there's not that, then this isn't worth doing because that's everything to us. That the hope of Christ, the hope of eternity, the hope of all that that is, is, is something that changes absolutely everything. So once more, what I'm needing you to understand is that this isn't just a side issue, it's the issue but it's a good one. Some of you are reading with us in the book of Romans, and if you are, then you were reading with us yesterday in Romans chapter 8 when Paul would say it this way, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. He says, here's the way I can look at it, because I recognize what's coming, because I see that heaven's coming. What we go through here, it's so small. It is such a small deal when you can consider the big deal that's coming, when you can think about the wonder that is ours. You know, we could see this, 
and recognize how minuscule it is. Can you try to do that with me just for a moment? It's actually impossible because our brains can't get that big, but I want you to try to think about forever. Forever and ever and ever. Eternity. That to be with Christ forever tells us in Psalm 16, for in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forever. I mean, it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Psalm 17 would say that in his presence, when we awaken his righteousness, we'll be satisfied. I mean, and that's going to last forever and ever and ever. So in your concept of mind, try to, try to picture forever, like this line that's going on forever and ever, and then I want you to think about this life. 60, 70, 80, 90 years maybe? It's a pinprick. It's this little bitty space compared to this big thing. I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to what's coming. It, it literally is so tiny in comparison that what's coming is so much bigger. It might not help, but I have this like silly illustration happening in my mind when I think that through. I, I think about going to the doctor and, and maybe having to go in and get a shot, as many have had to do it sometimes. And if you've had to do that, you understand how it works, right? They, they sit there and they hold that terrible sharp needle right before your arm, and they tell you, this might hurt for a moment. And you're like, great, you know, and, but then they just poke it through it, and, and it really is. It's like, it's just for a second. It's like, ow, that just, that pinched for a moment, you know, that, that, that poked for a moment. But that's kind of this. Whatever we go through in this life, it just hurts. It, it, it's so small. It's so minuscule. And in a moment, it's going to be gone, and eternity is, is dawning. There's this heaven that's coming that is going to be absolutely, fundamentally life-transforming. Now, think about it. You know, I mean, just what an incredible reality. We sang about it this morning in one of my favorite hymns, that hymn that is written by Horatio Spafford, It Is Well With My Soul. I want to spend a bunch of time kind of telling you this story behind it. Some of you are familiar. He literally went through incredibly hard spaces, losing all of his money, uh, losing two of his daughters to death, having lost his son before that. They die in, in, a, in, a, in a tragic accident over the ocean. He's traveling in the same space, and when he's right there in that location where his daughters die, the captain tells him, hey, you're there. He goes into his cabin and he writes this hymn and just simply says, you know, whatever comes, you know, we, we, you know when, when, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it's well. It is well with my soul. My soul is fine. Because no matter what it is I'm facing here, no matter what it is I'm going through, it is nothing compared to what I really am. My real hope isn't based in my present circumstances. My real hope is in Christ, and it is in what's coming. It is my incredible joy. It is that which is laid out before me. It's this incredible wonder that heaven changes everything. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what hard thing you're going through right now. But I can tell you this. Heaven is the answer you really need. Everything else is going to be temporary till you get there. Everything else is a band-aid. Because the real answer is that place where there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow and there's no more brokenness and there's no more tears and Christ wipes all of those away. That's the answer we are hungering for and longing for and to believe that here is the hope that we get. Now, to get that hope, it's an honest hope because not only do we see that heaven is coming for us, for Asaph, it wasn't just understanding his end, but the end of those who don't know God. Keep reading. 
I'll go back and start again in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a, as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He looks upon those who don't know God, on those who aren't His, and he recognizes that their end is destruction. He recognizes that these people that he was jealous of a moment ago, that he was looking on people who were ungodly, who seemed to be, you know, mocking God and making fun of them, he recognizes uh, their end is not a good end. Hell is coming. The reality of destruction is there. In fact, I find myself drawn very specifically to the illustration he uses. It just works for my small brain. If it works for anybody else, just pay attention to it. He says it that way in verse 20. As a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He says, for those who don't know God, it's going to be like waking up from a dream. That this world and all that they have It'll be over in a moment. And I don't know if that works for you. I don't know if you're one of those people that wake up from your dreams and remember them for a moment. If you're like many of us, it can happen. Like you're dreaming, and then all of a sudden you're awake. And, and for a few moments, you kind of remember it, but you just all of a sudden it's just gone. I mean, you're in a dream, and you're doing something really weird, like walking on the side of a wall or doing, you know, you're in some kind of crazy space that doesn't even make sense, but in a moment, it's gone. It's like, pfft, that was just, it's just, it's gone. It dissipates into nothingness. What Asaph recognizes is that's what's going to happen for everybody that doesn't know God. That's what's, that's, that's their, you know, no matter how much they have in this world, no matter whether they're rich or wealthy or successful or whether they live long lives, it's a dream. It's, a, it's, going, to, it's going to dissipate as quickly as a dream dissipates. I think about it, Jesus would say it this way. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? If you could actually have everything, and nobody does, but if you could, if you could have everything this world offers, if you could have all the money and all the pleasure and, and all the cars and all the homes and all the vacation spots, if you could have health, if you could have success, if you could have trophies, if you could have fame, if you could have anything and everything this world has and you lose your soul, you've lost everything. You awake and it's like a dream because heaven changes everything. Eternity literally changes everything. Eternity really is the reality that, that we get a chance of making sure that we see, hey, this is what it's about. I mean, this is what we're living for. We're not living for today. We're living for that which is to come. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, I just want to tell you right now that this is so often the answer that we need, that we get, you know, hurt or struggled in this place, and yet it is to look to then and think, that's going to be what I really live for. By the way, kind of just as an aside, this is how it does work. I mean, being a Christian does not exempt you from sorrow in this world. Christians get sick, Christians get cancer, Christians have all the things that go wrong in this world, and again, things can happen to us you know, even on top of that. Again, sometimes that struggle can be misunderstood, and again, people can think it shouldn't be that way, and some actually say it isn't. 
one of the false teachings that has permeated the church over the last 2,000 years, but it's actually very present today here in America, but even more so uh, in, in some of the other countries in India and in Africa that seems to be moving forward in, in strong ways is what's sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. And what it simply means is being taught is that people will say, hey, if you believe in Jesus and you really have faith and you really love him, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise. I mean, you're going to be successful and everything's going to go good for you and your family's going to be good and your kids are going to be good. It's just if you really love him, then that will bring you into just this great, you know, experience in life. And here's the thing. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I mean, anybody who can be honest would recognize there's a bunch of ungodly people that have that, that they have health and wealth, and and they are really bad. And there's some really godly people like Lori McKelvey who, you know, end their lives early. And you think, well, so how does this actually, you know, even work? And yet it's just to kind of work in that. I want to give it to you this way. One of the reasons I think the reason God does it this way is for the gospel to be clearly and rightly understood. If it really did work that way, if the gospel was a prosperity gospel, if people could get healthy, wealthy, and wise by coming to Jesus, people would come to Jesus like they would come for snake oil. I mean, just, I mean, it would be like, hey, I'll take anything. I mean, what do I have to do to get that? I want that. And people would come for all the wrong reasons. It would be selfish. It would be, it wouldn't be about wanting Jesus. It wouldn't be about wanting their sin taken care of. It wouldn't be about wanting eternity. People will do crazy things for what they think will get them ahead in this world. And if it worked that way, it would draw that. Instead, it goes the other way. So much so that at times, the best way to shine for Jesus is through our struggles, not through our prosperity. It's kind of, again, antithetical. We think about it being the other way. We think, hey, if I could get that job and I could be successful and if God would heal me, what an incredible testimony I might have, you know, and people would be drawn to Jesus because of how successful I am, and and we kind of have this weird, like, that's going to be really good, and it's often the other way, that sometimes the best ways that people see Jesus in you is when it's not going well, when you are having a hard time, when life is unfair, Sometimes the way the gospel is best seen is that we have a hope that is not based in this world, where we can say, you know what, my, I'm looking forward to a better world. I have hope, but my hope isn't found in politics, it isn't found in my economy, it isn't found in my bank account, my hope is bigger than that, and sometimes that is best seen in our adversity. Well, again, that's kind of an aside, but coming back to it again, I just want to tell you it's essential. It's the answer that Asaph finds. It's the answer that we desperately need, and again, for some of you, that's why you're here. I mean, that's worth the whole price of admission, as it were. Like, you just came and needed to understand again to get your eyes on eternity, that we walk by faith, not by sight, that we are those who look towards that which is real and and present and, and not setting our eyes on this world, and it would change where you are. Some of you, that's right where you are and you need, but Asaph isn't done. So he's writing this journal. He's helping us understand. He's let us know his deep struggle, how he almost quit, how he almost threw in the towel on his faith. He came into the sanctuary of God and he understood. Now he gazes back with a retrospect and and looks upon that moment. He says it this way in verse 21, thus my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant 
I was like a beast before you, nevertheless. I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. So what did Asaph just say? Well, a bunch, but in essence, he just recognized how incredibly faithful God was. He looks back on this moment, this space where he had these really hard questions when he began to doubt that God was good. When he was asking these hard spaces and he looks back at his struggles and he recognizes in spite of that, in spite of his struggles, God was good, that God was the one that was watching over him. And he looks back on it and I love the way he describes it. He says it there in verse 21, he says, my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. Hey, let's just put it to us in, 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 a, in a little bit more just vernacular. I was so dumb. I was living in such a dumb way. I was acting like an animal. I can't believe how, how silly I was living. I'm embarrassed, Asaph says. You know, as I look back on those moments when I was questioning whether God was good, I'm, I'm, I'm humiliated. I'm embarrassed because I was dumb. I was ignorant. I was foolish. I was acting like an animal. I mean, that's where I am. And yet he recognizes that God is good, that God was with him, that God was holding him, that God was guiding him, and God was leading him to glory. Yeah, notice how he says it. He says, nevertheless, and that's a big word, in spite of what I was doing, in spite of how dumb I was being, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. I mean, he just thinks through and recognizes even in this hard space when he didn't see it, when he didn't know it, in spite of what he was thinking, that God was good even when we don't see it. Even in those spaces where we can't grasp it, when we're actually asking hard questions, God is still faithful. I mean, he's like, you know, I didn't see it, but he never left me. He never left me. He's continually with me. Now, that's true. I can tell you, I can tell you promise that's true. I can tell you that God keeps his promises, that he would never leave us or forsake us. But I can tell you there are moments where we don't see it, and in spite of your lack of ability to see it, he's still there. Not only is he there, he's holding you. I, I love the picture. Um, I had a chance to have my uh, grandson in town this week, and so it was a lot of fun, and I found myself thinking through it, because we, we would walk every now and then, and you know, honestly, there are times I just had him. I mean, there are sometimes he held my hand, and we'd go for a walk, and there's other times he's going everywhere. Can I just tell you, I still had him. It was like, I'm not letting go. <laughs> like, I got you. Like, you are not going to go walking out into the middle of the street. You know, I'm, I, mean, I, I mean, I have your hand, and that's kind of how this works for me. I think that's what God's saying. It's like, even when you don't see it, I still am holding on to you. Even when you doubted me, I didn't let go of you. And he says, on top of that, he was guiding him. I mean, somehow, even when he didn't see it, God was working good through Asaph's life, and the journey was heading to this glorious end. All that was true even when Asaph didn't know it, even when he didn't see it. That's true in our lives. I mean, I think about it again. If you're reading with us in Romans, you read yesterday, and again, much of Romans 8 talks about that, but in one of the most well-known verses... It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He says, here's what we know. He's working in everything. He never lets us go. This is Paul saying kind of the same thing that Asaph's saying in entirely different words. Nevertheless, 
He's with us. He's holding us. He's guiding us. He's taking us to heaven. There's not anything that he's not working in. There's not anything that he's not working through. There's not any space where we are where he's not. It's all going together. And Asaph is having this incredible moment where he just recognizes that in spite of him, God is faithful. That's good news, guys. I love the way Paul would say it. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. There's something about understanding how good God is, is that he's good even when we don't get it. He's good even when we question whether he's good, he's still good. He's still faithful. He's still taking care of us. And so Asaph is able to look back on that and say, that's where I was. God was still faithful. But now we move forward. We move from where Asaph was to where he is now, to his declaration of of, of his, where that journey has brought him. Notice with me in verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Wow. So this is this amazing place where he says, here's where it is now. God's mine. I mean, God is my portion. He is the one that I look upon now. And Asaph is in an entirely different place than where he was. He was in a place where in his heart he was doubting whether God was good. Now he's in an entirely different place. He's able to say, no, it's God that I have. In fact, I love again the way that he says it. Verse 25, notice, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. That's a pretty poetic, it's pretty powerful, but what did he just say? Well, there's a sense of him saying, I have God. What else do I need? Nothing. (laughs) Like, I have God. He's he's the one that I have, and you know, who do I, I want him? I need him more than I need any other thing, and I, he's mine. He's my God. I have him, and he is now my strength. He is now my portion. I'm recognizing that it's him that I really need. Now, that doesn't, you know, again, move Asaph into a place that he's self-confident. In fact, he says it to us. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail. Like, my, it's just me. Like, I get my, I'm not always there. I'm not always at the top of my game. But God, he is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In my weakness, he is still my strength. He's the one that I trust in. He's the one that I believe in. He's the one that I recognize. He's the one that I recognize is my hope, my help, my strength. He's my whole life in that sense. And it's a great reality. It's this space where he's saying, that's what I have. I think about it again. So again, we're reading in Romans as a church, and if you were reading Romans 8, it's a lot about this whole subject. But let me just pull you to part of it. Near the end of Romans 8, Paul would say it to us this way. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What could get between us and Jesus? What could separate us from what we have gained in Christ, from the love of God that is ours in Christ? What could get there? And so he just poses some things. Shall tribulation, or what about distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What if things go badly? What if life gets hard? What if we enter into tribulation? And the idea of tribulation is to be pressed, where just so much is going wrong, and it's just squeezing your life. 
Or, or what if it's just distress? It's a different way of saying, what if you get stressed out? What if life becomes really stressful? Or, or what about persecution? What if it turns and we find ourselves as a church, even in America, facing persecution? Would that somehow make you know, this invalid, our hope invalid? Or, or what about famine or nakedness? What if we lose everything? What if the bank account does go away? What if you know, we do lose all of those kind of earthly pleasures? Or what if it's peril? What if it's sword? Could these things separate us from Christ? You know, what will separate us from the love of God in Christ? He says, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. There's not anything that we face that we don't defeat in Christ. There's not anything that wins the victory because of what we are in Christ. Paul would say, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's just really big. I just want to tell you, he gave you a list that encompasses anything. It's like, so what if, any, what if it all goes wrong? We're still with, if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. If, if we have him, if we have him, if my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, it is well with my soul, no matter what comes my way, because I have what I really need, that Jesus is that to me. In fact, Paul would preface that whole section by saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Again, that's Paul's words that says actually the same thing that Asaph said in different words, where he would say it there in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none that I desire beside you. Like we have God, what else do we need? I mean, if he's the one that is our confidence, if he's the one that is our hope, I mean, that's the place where we'd say, hey, this is my life. This is my all that I am and all that I really need. It's right there. It's Jesus it's what he accomplished, it's my salvation, it's my eternity, it's what he, the love of God in Christ, that's my everything. And Asaph saying, hey, this is my life, this is my portion, this is, this is what I have. Now again, to hold that hope out, he holds it as a way where we also think about those that don't have it. He says in verse 27, for indeed those who are far from you, who don't have God, who don't have Christ, they shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Again, to see our hope is also to see the lack of hope for those that don't have Christ. But let me make that very just clear and even applicational because we've kind of said it, but now I want to say it very directly. Maybe you're here in this room, or maybe you're on our overflow, or maybe you're watching online right now, and this is you. You're outside of the hope that's in Christ. Right now, maybe things are going well for you, but what Asaph is telling you is what God is telling you. In a moment, you're going to wake up, and everything that you have in this life is going to be gone. And if you, have, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, you have lost. There's a desperate need that you have for Jesus. There's a desperate need that you have for who he is, that that becomes everything. Because all those who are far from God, this is their destiny. This is where that is. And so today, I just get a chance to tell you that we long that that wouldn't be you. We're telling you one of the reasons we're still here is so that that could be proclaimed and known, and maybe this is your day. Maybe it's your day to recognize what you desperately need is Jesus. 
What you need is him, and he still rescues people from this hopeless end, who, from this perish, that we think about that amazing just verse that is the most well-known in the whole scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Wouldn't be in this place where Asaph says all those who are far from God, they perish. They, they have this hopeless, just eternal, horrible end. And today we're just inviting you to that. We're inviting you into a place that you can leave that and find hope in Christ. So if that's you today, we're just going to give you a moment just to pray in a moment and long that that would be yours. But Asaph has one more thing to say, just kind of in concluding that. He says it this way in verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Asaph tells us, hey, this was good. Hey, this was a hard time in his life. He went through a hard moment, doubting, questioning God, but he did the right thing. He went into God's presence. He says, it was good for me. It was good for me. It was good for me to draw near to God. It was good. This, was, it, this is the reason we get to read his journal. He says, it was good for me, and now I've said, God, I trust you. I trust you more. I, I, I believe you. I trust in what you are. I trust in what you have. He says, because here's what I want to do. I want to declare it. And once more, this is Asaph saying, I want you to read my journal. <laughs> I want you to read what I went through so that you can learn the lesson that I learned, so that I can tell other people, the God that, who's met me and what I'm going through, so that they can be met, which is exactly why we've journeyed through this psalm this morning. So as we think about that this morning, I guess I just ask this, so what is that for you? I mean, we think about here, Asaph says, hey, I, I get to declare, I get to tell you about my God. I get to tell you who he is. And I don't know where that's met you this morning, but I'm inviting you to it. One more time, it might be yours to surrender. It might be your day. It might be you that today you find yourself just met face to face with Asaph and you're outside of God's promise. And Asaph's struggle is actually helpful for you because it answers some of the questions that you're asking and draws you to the truth that you really need. It's about eternity. It's about where you're going to go and where you're going to spend all eternity. And today we long that that would be heaven. If that's you, we're going to invite you in a moment as we pray just to surrender. That said, I know that for some of you who know God, this could meet you in a couple of different ways. I, I want to just quickly say, it might be you. You may be Asaph. Like, this might be you better than anybody else knows. Nobody knows how hard this is for you. Nobody knows the questions that you're facing right now. God does. And I want to tell you, Asaph says, it was good for me. It was good for me to go through that because I have found God to be my help. He drew near to God, and today we're hoping that Asaph, his honesty, his honesty about his struggles and his doubts and his worries and his fears has met you in a way that would draw you towards God as well. Now, not all of us are there. Some of us are here, and we can say, hey, I've had those spaces that's not entirely where I am, but it's still helpful. It's still helpful for us to be drawn to that and drawn into a place of hope and help where we would say, God, you're my portion. I trust you. So let's do this. Let's close our Bibles. If you haven't already done so, let's take a next, the next moment and let's just ask that God would meet us. I'm going to give you a quiet space. We do this every Sunday, and so I'm going to quietly pray, and I'm going to give you a moment to quietly pray. It might be against surrendering to Jesus. Great time to do it. It might be you, that person that says, okay, I am Asaph, and, and you to follow the journey that he's been on. It might be, again, just for you to let it roll over you and in part of you just to say, okay, I do just recognize, I trust God. 
He's my hope. He, and, and, I, and I long that it would be that way. Long that God would see Christ even through my struggles and that I would be able to declare that. So I don't know what that is, but I do want to give you that quiet moment just that God would meet you there. So we're gonna have just a little bit of music playing in the background, really just to give you that space so that you could take this time and pray, that you could go before God and just make that space for him. So let's each one just do that in prayer and we'll come back together and close in worship in just a moment. Father, how we do come right now and just recognize together that you are good. You got to think about just the way that that is and, and the wonder with which we get to recognize that reality. I long that this morning you would meet us in that, that with Asaph we would be able to discover that, that what we needed is you, that you're our portion, that you're our life, you're our hope, you're our trust, you're our strength. God, would you work even now in that space of just drawing us to you and what you have for us, and I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you indeed are good. Now, Lord, we'll just work that in our lives in such a very real way. We pray for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, just longing that God meets you in that. If you have questions, you can come up and talk to me afterwards. You can reach out to us from online, call us, email us. We'll do our best to walk with you, and we'd love to do that. But as we close, we want to close in worship. So why don't you guys stand? Again, you guys online, join us as well. Let's close in a final worship song and seek him. As you head that way, I just want to bless you in God's name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.